to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. One in five local newspapers has ceased publishing in the United States since 2004, a total of 1,800 papers. Reporter Mike Jacarino tells the story of how two of New York City's major papers have, have battled to survive in his book, America's Last Great Newspaper War, The Death of Print in a Two-Tabloid Town, the first inside look at the ferocious tabloid war between the New York Daily News and the New York Post in a time when digital news uh, has uh, been on the rise and print journalism is in serious decline. It's published by Fordham University Press, Empire State Editions, and brings Mike Jacarino to our show now. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. How are you today? Uh, well, <laughs> as good as I can be under the circumstances. I have no idea yeah. whether I'm uh, positive or not. None of us do. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I appreciate, really appreciate you having me on. During, oh, uh, uh, this is a fascinating story. I love your book. Uh, when you, you so were much. When you were offered a job at the, the Daily News in 2006, weren't you asked, kid, what are you going to do to help us beat the post? It was many... unbelievable, Leonard. The, yeah. the city editor didn't ask me what my ambitions were. He didn't ask me what I had done. He didn't ask me about my resume or the clips that I had written in prior newspapers. He actually asked me, what are you going to do to help us beat the post? I didn't know what to say. How I had many... a great answer for him. Though. How many years uh, into the war was that? Well, the, the, the war has been going on for a long time, right? So uh, uh, it probably started... Shortly after Rupert Murdoch bought the Post in 1976, it's probably uh, difficult for New Yorkers to remember a time when the News and Post weren't competing like cats and dogs. But uh, there was a time, and it wasn't that far in the uh, in the past. Um, well, actually, didn't it really occur when he moved the news, uh, the Post, from an afternoon paper to a morning paper, and then also added a Sunday edition? Uh, that was That's 1982. Exactly yeah, he, he, yeah. He not, only, he not only did that, he did that in March of 1980, but he also completely changed what the Post was. It used to be, under Dorothy Schiff, a, a, a fairly sober and restrained newspaper. That's what's hard, hard to imagine. And right? a liberal paper with, with people like Murray paper. Kempton. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he, he, he not only completely changed the paper, made it more like this, you know, this gritty tabloid, New York tabloid, like the news was at the time, but but he, as you pointed out, he, he made it a, a morning paper like the news was. So they were competing as of March of 1980 for the same customers. And has he ever explained why he decided to do that? Was it because uh, the, 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 the afternoon newspapers were dying in New York? I, I could say this. When you go back and read all the clips, right, from the Washington Post, New York Times, to cover his purchase and his actions and months and years immediately after his purchase in 1976, it's clear that he's intent uh, on obsessively destroying the news from the, from the get-go, mm. from the get-go. I mean, he, he it was almost as if he saw from, from, from that moment that, that New York wasn't really going to be big enough for both of them. And, and you could really see that, that kind of mindset permeate his actions as he, as he moves forward. Well, isn't New York big enough for two tabloids? I'm not, I'm not sure that's the case uh, anymore. And, and, and you know the, the figures kind of back that up, right? Well, during I mean, my when lifetime, I got the news, uh, during my lifetime, I've seen the demise of the Daily Mirror, the Herald Tribune, the World Telegram and Sun, the Journal American, the Brooklyn Eagle, the Long Island Press, Staten Island Advance, and I probably have left a few out. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's it, listen. It's really hard to believe that that a, a brand like the Post or the News would fold, right? They seem so entrenched in New York life. Um, but digital has really done crazy things to our, our industry. Um, it's, uh, 
it's really, really had a, a profound effect, and in a very short period of time. Wasn't the news um, America's first tabloid? It was. June 16, uh, 1919. Yeah. It was, and it quickly it quickly became America's largest newspaper. It was it was a smashing success, uh, and, and it, it, it had these astronomical circulation figures, uh, 2.5 million daily, um, a factor of more on Sunday, um, figures that you'll never see again for a, for a major metro in New York City. It won 11 Pulitzer Prizes, inspired Superman's Daily Planet, uh, published world journalism legends like Jimmy Breslin, Pete Hamill. But hadn't it fallen to six by the time you arrived? The, the Post was seventh at that time. Yes, yes. Uh, they had, they had, uh, they had fallen. Uh, to, to, I mean, the news is bread and butter audience, right? The 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 white middle class workers from the outer boroughs. They had been moving out of New York City um, in, in droves, and and that and with them went the news as traditional readership. Uh, the Post fared a little bit better, right? They 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 closed it when Murdoch bought the paper. It was selling like four hundred seventy eight thousand, and by the time I got to the news in two thousand six. It had closed the gap and actually surpassed the, the news in, in, in circulation for the first time. But the news, the news, as you point out, it didn't really do well um, with with what had happened in New York City during the 70s and 80s. The Post hadn't started as a tabloid. It was founded by Alexander Hamilton in 1801. Uh, it became a tabloid when Dorothy Schiff uh, changed it in 1942? Correct, correct. And, and Murdoch upped it. Uh, it as I said, it, it had stayed kind of sober and restrained with these long, thoughtful articles on foreign policy and education. But then when he took it over, he, he instituted page six in 1977. He devoted half the paper to sports. Uh, he, he enlarged photos. You, you began to see uh, lurid headlines like headless body found in topless bar and, and that sort of thing. And, and Great so it kind of and it's conservative and it's editorial page, as you pointed out veered hard to the right. Did people at the news fear that their paper might not survive the tabloid war? We were openly talking on the street uh, during the time that I was there uh, about which paper might fold. I, I never thought that one could because, as I said, they're just, they're just so entrenched. You know, I'm a kid from Staten Island. Um, I grew up reading the news. It was the only paper that I ever wanted to write for. Um, I, I never could imagine that one of them would go away. But the figures... Today's figures and what's happened is suggest otherwise. Well, as uh, you mentioned, people are now getting a lot of the news on their phones, and uh, there's the growing popularity of cable news services like CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. Uh, is is that a reason that the front page headline has become so important for the tabloids? Front page headline was always important. The, the point of sale for a tabloid is is on the newsstand. That's the difference between that model and the model for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, which are, are, are home-delivered. We have to earn our, our, our readers every day, and, and that, that infuses the, 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 the competition between the news and the post because often they're right next to each other, right? So you could see who's got the better front page day in and day out. So that, that really you know, adds a level of urgency, urgency to what its staff does each day. But you, you, know, you could see the physical representation of – who did better in the field the day before when you look at a newsstand? Judging from the voting records, New, York's, New Yorkers have tended to be politically liberal, uh, and Murdoch, as you pointed out, transformed the Post, which had been a, a liberal newspaper under Dorothy Schiff, into a rather conservative paper. 
Um, so <clears throat> why do you think the Post was uh, able to um, build its circulation when its politics went against the, uh, the general politics of New Yorkers? Uh, it sold for half half the price of what the Daily News did. Uh, it, it it there's there's clips that you go back in the record. He subsidized a lot of the circulation because he was just so intent on beating the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know there's an audience for what he what he created. Uh, I mean the Post is fun to read. Let's let's face it, right? It's it's enjoyable. It's a guilty pleasure. Um, so you know there's there's definitely an audience, and he's a good newsman, right? He he, he, he his instincts are are, are very very uh, acute. So uh, he was able to close the gap with the news, as I said, to to, to the point where he surpassed it in circulation in, in October of 2006 for the the prior six months. Hadn't Mortimer Zuckerman, who uh, bought the news, f- I mean from Dorothy Schiff, I mean from uh, uh, well. He bought the news anyway. Uh, didn't hadn't he moved it a little further to the center than it had been in the past? Although he says he voted you know, for Obama. I, I, I got to play ignorance on that one. I never really read the editorial pages mm-hmm. of the news. I, I, I Even when you were working there. <laughs> well, no, I know what it was when I was there. I'm talking about uh, in the years prior to, to what I yeah. you know, when I was there. When I was there, it was certainly something. It was an advocate for the, the working class. It was an advocate for the uh, the middle class. Um, you know, we we took on on the big guy. Uh, we we thrilled in tearing down people of privilege and and advocating for the little guy. That was our ethos. That's who we were, right? We were crusaders, and and we knew who our readership was. Um, so, well, there were a number of of strikes over the years. Did they play a role in the story that you're telling here? They they do. Uh, they weaken the news in in, in circulation. But I, I didn't really. This book takes place, so it kind of lays the groundwork, the context of it in, in, in one chapter of, of the news post-war, tells the story of, of Rupert Murdoch and, and what he did to close the gap. And then the narrative takes off uh, when I got there. I was there, I was at the news in a very uh, strange, extraordinary uh, period in time. It was the moment when not only had the Post surpassed the news in circulation, but both papers were beginning to feel the pressure of digital, right? What had bec- what was a pitched tabloid fight became existential. And it, it imbued everything that we did and, and all of the, the, the narrative, uh, the actions that you see in the, in the story, in the book, as runners and, and, mm-hmm. and reporters chase their, their, the, the big stories of the day. You see them acting with, with the level of gonzo intensity that, that kind of speaks to the fact that we really thought only one of these papers was going to be left standing in the end. So that that's really the time frame from 2006 to, to when the, the financial crisis of 2008 really dealt the knockout blow to how we were conducting business. So you haven't, written, moment. You haven't written your book as a straight history, but uh, rather uh, you're telling the story through the eyes of the runners and the shooters who went to the scenes of the hottest stories of the day. The Absolutely. kind of thing this that we fun, see on TV yeah. now. Now, we should point out what a runner is and what a shooter is. Yeah, this is this is supposed to be a breezy summer read. I, I wrote it like a private detective book, uh, you know, because you think about it, just explaining what a runner is. A runner, a runner is, it's kind of a strange job. It's really, it's really a, an odd job. I've been a reporter for about six or seven years for Jersey Papers before I got to the news, and running didn't exist. But in New York City's different. Um, it's 305 square miles, and it, anybody who's ever tried to get from one place to another 
during rush hour knows how hard that is and all the logistical hurdles that, that are that are attendant upon that that try to that, that that endeavor. So you can't really go to the scene of the story, collect what you're gonna collect, witness what you're gonna witness, and then go back to the newsroom and write it. It's not practical. You have to just have people devoted to running who are field reporters. They just they basically run from scene to scene to scene, from breaking news scene to breaking news scene to breaking news scene. Sometimes I cover five boroughs in a single day. Sometimes I cover four and then get a call to go to Las Vegas or California. And and that's what you see described in the book. And and, and we would get that stuff and then we would call it back to the rewrite reporter on the desk in the newsroom and you know, they would take our feed, that was what we called it. And then they would cobble together the account that you see in the paper the following day. You were based pretty much in the Bronx Bureau? No, no, I was in the field. I was every day at the 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 the, 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 the scenes in this book take place in the field. They're, hmm. They don't take place in the newsroom. What you'll see is daily news runners. Everywhere we went, the post was there. So it was strange, right? You, so your job was to chase the famous and the rich and the powerful and to beat the post to the scoop, but you must have bumped into each other all the time. They were there everywhere. This is, this is what's great about this, right? So no matter what scene we went to, they were going to the same scene because they, they're both tabloids in New York City. They're both chasing the same stories. I have this wonderful, wonderful story that will really drive this home for your readership, your listeners. So in 2008, there was this State University of New York basketball player. I forget what his name was. But he, he, he was over here just to play basketball. He was a Serbian importer. He lived in some town 90 miles north of Belgrade. And he came over here, and he pummeled a fellow student into a, a coma during a bar brawl. And before they could arrest him, he fled back to Serbia. So the news, if you think about this, they, they, they got a, a reporter named Rich Shapiro to fly to Serbia, and once he got a fixer, right, who's a, a local guy who could speak the language and, and navigate the roads and yada, yada, by the time he got to the door of the family in this little village 90 miles north of Belgrade and knocked on the door, the family opened it and said, listen, I'm sorry, the post has already been here, and they've ex- not only interviewed us, but extracted a promise not to interview, give any interviews to any late-arriving daily news reporters. I mean, just think about that for a second, right? The war in the book that's, that's, that's described didn't take place just in the streets of New York City. It took place way far afield in New York City, in L.A., and Las Vegas. We went all over the place because we always knew that if we didn't go, the Post would go and they would beat us. That was the calculus driving every decision we made, right? Every victory was viewed in the context of how good it was over the Post. Every defeat was viewed in the context of, of how, how sorely we lacked versus what the wood was for the post. The wood is the front page. Um, it, it was just an amazing fight. And the way you tell it, the end tended to justify the means, and nothing was off limits. But you report that you and a rival would sometimes team up. So you were friendly sometimes. Yeah, so here's the thing, right? Because you're going to scenes every day and seeing the same people every day, you couldn't go 90 miles an hour every day. You might go 90 miles an hour to get to the scene. And that's why we called it running, right? Because we had to get there fast. Um, but once you got there, you couldn't go metaphorically 90 miles an hour every day. You'd burn out. So if, if you got there and it was, you know, going to be six inches on page 12 and, and the, you know, this guy or, or gal from the post had gotten there 20 minutes after you and you had the good fortune to interview, uh, you know, whoever was involved in the story, you might give them your notes. You might give them a quote so they didn't get yelled at or potentially lose their job because if you got beat enough times, you would lose your job. 
So you had to be human about it. There was also a level of respect among the runners and shooters of the News and the Post. We, we, we cared for each other in the sense that we, we cared about not only beyond our rivalry, we were all journalists, and we were obsessed with getting the get. I mean, if there was anything that, that drove these people who worked in the field, and they were a colorful bunch who were described in this book, they were driven with Jedi-like devotion to getting the get, to getting the story. And, and it was what we ate, slept, and drank. And um, you know, we cared about each other in that sense because we were both doing it. And, 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 you know, that's why people from the Post would go to people from the news as going away party and vice versa. <laughs> At the end of the day, right, you know, once the, the score was tallied on the front page, we, we, you know, we, were, we lifted a toast to each other. I suspect some people went from one paper to the other as well. Uh, yeah, and more than one toast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a there's plenty of the the, the annals of the News and Post are, are filled with people who, who jumped from from side to side, right? You could you could always uh, I think I tried it once. You could you could always after a really good streak go to the other side if you've beaten them up a number of times. You, you might you might reach out and see how much they were willing to pay you more than what you know, the news was, and then you could come back to the news and say, well, you know, I got this off from the post. And, and you, you might be able to, a lot of people played it that way. Sure, sure. Because, because they cared so much, right? If you, if you scoop the post constantly, they might be willing to pay a few extra bucks to, to, to get you, to pry you loose, to get you on their team. I'm speaking with Mike Jacarino, J-A-C-C-A-R-I-N-O. His book, America's Last Great Newspaper War, The Death of Print in a Two-Tabloid Town. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. You mentioned going to Las Vegas. You chased O.J. Simpson through the streets of Las Vegas. Oh, this was great, right? So I, I went out to, ha- uh, to Hackensack on this tale of these two guys who had so battled over the final bottle of beer that, that one fell off. Uh, the fourth floor balcony of his building. And, and I'd, I'd gotten the scoop, right, because it was the first assignment of the day, and I was so happy. And I, I called the city editor, and he, he didn't greet me with enthusiasm. He just said, get on the next plane to Vegas, right, because O.J. Simpson's been brought in for questioning. And, you know, I, I didn't you know I didn't really have a, a frame of reference. I kind of knew O.J. Simpson, but I was, you know, in my late 20s at the time. But we flew out there, and, and, and we chased him. But here's the interesting thing. So, he was nominally, he was supposed to be staying at the, the at, at the Palms, and we went there first looking for him. We didn't find him, so then we went to the, the Palace Station as soon as we landed, right? And we weren't at the Palace Station more than you know probably a minute, two minutes. And and who do we bump into? Jennifer Firmino from the Post. <laughs> um, and then and then for the next four days before he was he was actually uh, arrested and arraigned, it was really just the news in the Post on the ground chasing after him, trying to locate him. And it's a great story that's recounted in the book. We finally found him. This is it's, it's fantastic. We were my photographer and I were staking out the floor of the of the Palms Casino, and we got a tip that he might be coming through, and he did. He came out in a tuxedo with with a wedding party, and he was they were dressed in the nines as well. And I, I shot up next to him and I said, "Hey, OJ, how you doing? Mike Jacarino from the Daily News." I said, "You know, they're saying that you had a gun." And he looked at me and he said, no gun. He goes, hey, you're a good-looking guy. Good for you. And then who's right next to me but Jennifer Firmino from The Post, right? So we had chased him for four days, and she was right there, right? The second that I got him, she was right there. And this is, this is fantastic, and it really draws an illustration of not only what the book is about but what the war was about. So I'm so happy I got him, and I think it's all over, right? Because now I could call back to the city desk and say, hey, I got OJ. I finally got word. 
he gets into his, his limousine and he pulls away from the, the, the palms. But then my photographer, Debbie Egan Chin, says, Mike, look, look at that taxi over there. And I go over to the taxi, and Jennifer Firmino is lying prone in the back seat. She didn't want us to see. And she was going to trail the limousine. <laughs> so then we, we got in. Luckily, there was another taxi on the taxi stand. So, so Deb and, and I got into that taxi. And I'll, I know I'll never have another chance to say these words out loud again. But I said, follow that cab, right? <laughs> And the guy looked at me like I'm nuts, right? Because who says follow that cab outside of Hollywood? And he didn't want to do it. But I'm like, listen, I'll pay anything. I'll pay it double. So he follows the cab. And it turned out to be a slow-speed chase, ironically. And uh, he pulled into a wedding chapel because O.J. was in Vegas, not to steal memorabilia, but he was there really to serve as the best man for his friend Thomas Scotto at, at the wedding. And it was madness at the wedding. It was just, uh, it was great. And then the chase went on for another, seven, you know, another four or five days. And actually, here's another great story. Once it ended in Vegas, there's another thing, representation of the News and the Post rivalry, right? So after he leaves Vegas, after his arraignment, uh, O.J. gets on a plane, a commercial. He flies commercial. And I get on the plane because the news wants to chase him back to Florida. They want to document. These are the lengths that they were willing to go to. They wanted to document what he did on the plane. So I get on, and I, I go back, okay, I'm probably, I don't know, 10, 15 rows uh, from the back of, of, of coach. And I sit down, and who should be right in front of me? I see this pomp door in front of me, right? I kind of recognize the back of the hair, but it, 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 maybe I've seen this guy. And then I hear him order a drink, and his accent is Australian. And then I know who it is, right? It's Steve Dunleavy. And, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know who Steve Dunleavy was. He was the Post's main columnist at the time, late Steve Dunleavy. And, and so there were, there were three media outlets on that plane chasing O.J. from Vegas to Florida, the News, the Post, and an AP videographer. I mean, the lengths that we were willing to go to to win and not get beat, it was really amazing. It was fun. And, and uh, I hope that, that kind of paints the portrait. Well, you, you write uh, about uh, uh, another chase in 2008, Hillary Clinton, who just lost the Democratic nomination to Barack Obama. A an editor had told you, if she frowns over her lettuce at the deli, I want to know about it. Yeah, the great John Oswald. Now, why do I find it so distasteful that the News and the Post were fighting over who would get the first picture of her wallowing in defeat? Oh, come on. Who doesn't want to see that, right? That was a huge photo. That was that was that was great. Uh, so so but that was another car chase. You want me to tell that story? Yeah, please. So this this is this is fantastic. So we're we're out and it and it, it reveals a little quirk in, in Bill's personality, Bill Clinton's personality. So the news of the post, me and, and the post reporter Perry Schiamonte were were staked out in lawn chairs. Uh, you know, and they have us the Secret Service has us like, you know, probably I would say 40 yards in the house. They live in a cul-de-sac in, in uh, Chappaqua. Uh, and there's only like seven or eight other houses on the block, and they're in the back. And it was a lot of traffic the, 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 the first two or three days. And we chased every black SUV with tinted windows that came out of there. We, we quickly learned that most of this traffic was the Secret Service going out on deli runs, going to the cleaners, you know, doing little odd jobs around town. And we realized, though, that when Bill or Hillary travel, they travel in a caravan, not just a single vehicle. And the reason we, knew, we, we were able to, to figure this out is because it was, a, it was a scorching hot day, right? It was like 99 degrees. Uh, 
And Bill came out, and he rolled down the window, and he waved to us. He must have let all the air conditioning out of his, out of his car. But he couldn't help himself, right? There's these two tabloid reporters laying siege to his home for days, chasing after the, his SUV, his Secret Service protection. But he could not help himself from, from being affable Bill, right, and waving to us and shooting us a big grin and then sticking his head back into the SUV and rolling up the window. So we knew that when Bill or Hillary traveled, it was going to be in a convoy. And we also knew that two days later when another convoy came down and nobody rolled down the window, mm-hmm. it was probably Hillary. And then the race ensued. So did you get the you know, picture? I fell in be- oh, well, here's what happened. So this is great. So I fell in behind the limo, and, and the post lost her. And I'm driving, I'm driving, and we're, we get on the highway, and we're heading towards the city. And, and, and one of the SUV uh, from the caravan uh, drops back and falls in behind me and puts on his lights. And I called the city desk, and, and I, I get Oswald, who, who was the guy who, told, who had that salad line, the lettuce line. And I say, John, they're, they're following me in the SUV, the, the Secret Service. What should I do? He's like, listen, you keep going. You don't lose her for nothing. He goes, I'm pretty sure they could shoot you, but they can't arrest you. Wait until you see a real cop. So we, <laughs> we kept going, and I lost her at the Triborough Bridge Easy Pass. These were, these were in the early days of, of Easy Pass, and she had it, and I didn't. But the news and the post were able to, to the news at least was able to figure out from her course of her trajectory, her, her course of travel, that she was headed to the airport. And I believe that, that she that she was made at one, at one of the airports. And they dispatched a photographer. You tell lots of interesting stories here. Runners and shooters sneaking into hospitals, doing month long stakeouts, conducting bidding wars for scoops. Uh, you uh, some of the you once. Uh, you write about uh, even infiltrating John Gotti's crypt at St. John's Cemetery in Queens. He was dead for, for five years at that point. Why would you even want to go in there? It was the fifth anniversary, and we wanted to beat the Post. So th- this was a scheme that we had hatched the, uh, the night before because we suspected the Post was going to be there. But what, because Victoria Gotti were... would come? Yeah, we wanted to document the 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 uh, the the uh, the morning of her of their family oh, boy. <laughs> That's, that was really the reason maybe we would get a quote from victoria which we did um but we, we kind of surmised that the post would get there around 10 or 11 so i got there at like seven o'clock in the morning uh, with the daily news and and i just sat there in the crypt for a couple hours kind of reading the paper when someone would come by i'd put the paper down and and, and pretend to pray um and when i waited and i i the post did show up, and my photographer pleaded ignorance that I was inside, and the post didn't go inside. So I got that little nugget. I, I when Victoria came up and she she sat down and she started, you know, she didn't her, her lips did not move. I, you know, she didn't say anything, but I got that moment of her praying before the crypt, and the post didn't because you know you should have seen the face, the look on the face of the post reporter when I walked down with her out the out of the crypt. I followed behind her and. Um, but, you know, that, that was the margin of victory for, for the news in the Post. That was a big win because I got, I got that little detail and was willing to wait two or three hours for it, and the Post reporter was outside. We would do anything to beat them, and, and they would do anything to beat us. And, and that was really, that's a great representation of that. And a number of the people who are in these stories were disgraced, like Elliot Spitzer and uh, Bernie Carrick, who the president has just pardoned, the, the former New York a police department commissioner. Uh, 
What were you looking for? Well, I know what you were looking for with Elliot Spitzer. What were you looking for with, with Bernie Carrick? So that is a great story, and another car chase. So, so Carrick had, had gone to, to uh, your listeners are going to love this. So we, we showed up we, we showed up to, to, to watch him uh, and, and to document his appearance in, in Westchester County Federal Court. He was there on, on some sort of corruption charge. And he showed up with a doppelganger. Uh, the, the person, I, I don't know if it was a show, it was a chauffeur, but the person was dressed exactly in the same, in the same outfit. They were both wearing these, uh, these Navy, Navy suits with red tie and a white shirt. And the guy was wearing the same uh, sunglasses and had the same mustache and, and had, had, they both had shaved heads and they were sort of the same build. And, you know, I don't know for sure that Bertie Carrick travels with a doppelganger, but uh, I don't think that, that, you know, it was a coincidence that that guy had dressed exactly like and, and had the very same shaved head that his boss did. So anyway, I, my I, my job that day, I didn't document his appearance in court. My job was to wait in a chase car up the block, and we were going to chase him back to his home because we wanted we, we didn't know where he was going. We wanted to know where he was going, so uh, we could we could we could relay that in, in the the paper the following day. And I chased him all the way back to his home in Franklin Lakes. And this is really funny. So once I got there, and, and we did, his chauffeur probably went 90 to 100 miles an hour. That was a scary car chase. Hmm. Uh, but, but once we got there, Phil Sims's wife, Phil, Phil Sims lives across the street from, from Bernie Carrick, or at least used to, from Bernie Carrick's house. And Mrs. Sims came out. We staked out Bernie Carrick's house on Phil Sims's property. Phil Sims, of course, being the, the, the great giant quarterback. And Mrs. Sims came outside. Phil was... Uh, probably out and he was he wasn't there that day or in the in the days ensuing but mrs sims came out and gave us some lemonade which was which was very nice <laughs> we're speaking about the rivalry between the the new york post and the new york daily news on today's leonard lopate at large stay with us for more Reporting the massacre, crime fam against fam, streets is a war zone, bloodbath, running for protection, chains against the Lucas, bullets in all directions, duck at the safe house and re-up the ammo, it's a battlefield down here and they moving the camel, and your headline reads, bodies is left butchered, whole family killed and tossed in the bushes, it's a massacre, bringing out the faces of death, and your wigs tell priests how they murdered the rest. guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large is Mike Jacarino. He's written a book called America's Last Great Newspaper War, The Death of Print in a Two-Tabloid Town, published by uh, Empire State Editions of the Fordham University Press. Now, uh, people know a lot about uh, Rupert Murdoch, but less about uh, Mort Zuckerman, who was seen as the rescuer of the news when he bought it in 1994 from Robert Maxwell, who had mysteriously drowned at sea. <laughs> it's almost like a tabloid story. Yeah, it was. It was quite. Uh, uh, and, and yeah, it was. It was quite. Quite something. That was before my time, but yes. <laughs> well, but his background was in real estate, although he'd already owned the Atlantic Monthly. Um, so. Uh, he wasn't like Murdoch. He wasn't a guy who was a lifelong newspaper man. No, he, he was. He was uh, Uncle Mort. We call him. He, he wasn't involved. And you know, I mean, what's amazing is 
Murdoch, I think when he bought the Post, it was like his 84th or 85th paper. He was in his mid-40s. But he was involved, right? He, he, he was really involved in, in what the paper was going to look like. And I think I, I read uh, somewhere in, in my research that he could do any job in a newsroom well, uh, you know, obviously. But he was nominally the publisher of the Post. Uh, Mort wasn't really involved in, in editorial operations in any, any way. Um, there was one little anecdote that we couldn't score a, uh, an invitation to Donald Trump's one of his weddings, and the Post did because of Murdoch, and, and uh, they had somebody there to cover it, and we didn't. So he, he gave us – I don't know if this is true, but he gave, supposedly he gave feeds uh, from, from one of Trump's weddings to, to the city desk, so we wouldn't be scooped by the Post. Well – the news was engaging in fake news. Um, <laughs> and the Post, of course, has always told the truth. Um, was the, the war between the news and the Post at all similar to the one that uh, had occurred in the 1890s between Pulitzer and Hearst? Yes. So I spoke to a, a, an industry analyst, John Morton, who was probably the best at what he did. He's retired now. And um, he said that that's the only analog, really, that, Really, in American history, there's there's just, you know, when we hear about Pulitzer Hearst, it conjures up all these visions of just craziness, right? And and the only, you know, comparison is, is the news in the Post during that period uh, from after when, after Murdoch bought it in 1976, and, and certainly when I was there, when both papers were under pressure from digital. Um, so it's, it's really, uh, you know, it's a moment in history. It's it, 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 it tells the story of how the death of print in America played out in one town. Well, neither of their their uh, newspapers have survived. The newspapers they uh, had at the time. Yeah, I mean, New York City's been through so many. Uh, you know, the graveyard of newspapers in New York City is it has some very distinguished names on it. Uh, you know, I hope that the News and Post survive. I really do because it, there's such pillars of, of of the city and you know part of the fabric of the city. That the back page, the front page. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it, there's. There's, the consensus seems at this point that the print edition of the news is on the way out uh, sooner rather than later, which well, is amazing, right? The Daily News is not going to publish a print edition. I, I don't know that for a fact, but that seems to be, from people who, who know the, who know and watch these things today. Um, well, as you said, when you arrived, uh, the, the news's uh, circulation was around 700,000. Uh, the, the paper had... Uh, 500 full-time journalists plus many freelancers and what are called permalancers and also some pretty famous columnists like Mike Lupica and Michael Daly, Bill Madden, George Rush, uh, Joanna Malloy. Um, uh, is Lupica still with the paper? No, he's writing books, uh, writing some great books. So all of them um, are gone? Uh, yes, they're all gone. They're all gone. Uh, they're working essentially on the skeleton crew at this point. Uh, which is very sad. And and the Post is uh, doing better because Rupert Murdoch is, has deep pockets. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, he has, if any, if nothing else, a deep emotional connection to the Post. I mean, I, I didn't speak to him, but every action he's ever taken suggests as much. And, and the, the thinking is that as long as he's alive, the Post will will continue. Um, at least, you know, have a print edition. Um, and he, he his family lives. Uh, they have they have great longevity, so he might be around for a while. Now, Mort Zuckerman is reported to have gone through many editors at the news. Do we know why he got rid of them, and what kind of impact does that sort of thing have on the people who are working under those editors? Well, look, the consequences of losing every day were, were obvious. That's that's one of the reasons why 
um, we acted the way we did. Uh, you know, we knew that our jobs were on the line. We knew that every day, because look, it all trickles downhill. If if if, if the editor in chief, the pressure that he applies to the managing editor applies to the city editor applies to the you know to the the, the, the desk editors, and then you get it in the field. And and there was just every day an intensity that was just uh, unbelievable. Um, he, he changed. He went through a lot of editors. The editor at the time that I was there, Martin, was a guy named Martin Dunn, who was extremely talented and, and a smart guy and a, a Fleet Street veteran. And um, but you know there have been many many editors since then. And, um, well, you have but, many you know, colorful characters in the story, like Cole Allen, uh, the editor that Murdoch uh, imported from his Australian <laughs> newspaper, Stable. <laughs> yeah, uh, Cole Allen was look. He was, if nothing else, he was he was really really good at what he did. Um, he, he increased the, the post circulation by I don't know 150 200 thousand during a challenging period in the early aughts, and he 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 finished Murdoch's work. There's an amazing tale, you know, and it gives you a sense of just how the post viewed the news. Lachlan Murdoch uh, talked about the 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 job description that they they wanted to fill when they hired Cole Allen in 2000. Uh, I wanted somebody who was crazy, crazy enough, crazy as I was, who thought we could beat the news, and and they found Call and 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 Call, he 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 turned up the dial on the tabloidiness of the post that Murdoch had already done to a, 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 a an hysterical level, and and it it, it served the paper well. Um, it gained a lot in circulation and eventually passed the news when I got there. Even though it was kind of hysterical, that that has an appeal to the the reading public. What, what does uh, the the fact that he you 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 say he turned up the dial on the to on the hysterical level? Oh, yeah, no, 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 he he, 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 on the, he he turned up the dial on the tabloid yeah. paper, and and look, there's an appetite for that in New York City. I love reading the Post. Who doesn't? I mean, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's it's been yeah. reported that Mort Zuckerman began to suffer from dementia for a number of years. Eventually, turned the the running of the paper over to his nephews and trusted associates. How aware of the situation were staff members at the time? You were gone no, by then, that, weren't you? Not at all, and that's not in my book. I don't know anything about yeah. that. No, <laughs> I saw him once a year I, at Christmas party. You got to Google him, and that was it. <laughs> what? If you Google him, you'll find that story. It's very interesting. No, I, I did. Yeah, of course. He I, was also one I of the investors who'd been defrauded by Bernie Madoff's investment scam. Uh, I'm assuming uh, that had some kind of impact on the paper because then money must have been shorter. Well, he, he sold it for a buck. I mean, mm -hmm. he, 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 he sold the news. For, can you imagine that? Just think about that. He sold the news for a dollar. Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, To Trump. Uh, I did spend a few days out in front of Mort Zuckerman's house with the Post once that, that, whole, uh, that whole scandal blew up. What uh, reasons were you given for when they laid you off in 2011? And had you seen it um, coming? No, I didn't. Um, uh, I mean, I was, I was laid off as part of uh, one round uh, of, of, of mass layoffs that, that have, have turned the, the, the newsroom, as I said earlier, into a skeleton crew. Um, you know, with, I was laid off with a number of other people uh, as part of a, a downsizing that that has continued over the years. Um, you know, that was that was the reason, and uh, you know, that was the reason given, and that was the reason that 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 was evident in, in the dwindling circulation. 
And at, at your going away party, didn't a colleague joke, go home, Rambo, the war's over, go home. Yeah, so, so look, you know, at, at the time that I was at the news, they would field armies of people, and so would the Post. That's what made it so remarkable. Uh, during Elliot Spitzer's, you know, hooker scandal, we probably had 40 people aside at different locations. When Vito Fasella, the congressman from Staten Island, when it was revealed that he had a second family in Alexandria, Virginia, we send people all over the country, and that's what the book documents, right? I mean, there's people going all over, the, running to, to locations and scenes all over the country so that we wouldn't get beat, so we would beat them. And, and nobody's there anymore. Um, there might be one runner per shift, which is hard to fathom, right? Where just 10 years ago, these armies did battle on big stories, epic, dramatic battles with car chases and bidding wars, as you point out. But it, it's just, it's all over now. It'll never happen again either. Um, now, in covering those stories like Spitz or Fasello, uh, yeah, or the other ones we've discussed, uh, were you doing coming up with things that the more establishment papers like the New York Times were not coming up with? Uh, yes, yes. So well, there's two reasons for that. A, uh, because the Times had a little bit of a different focus. I mean, they certainly covered these stories, but and the Times whooped us, whooped everyone on, on, uh, on Ashley Dupree and who she was. They were the first to, to identify her when she was just identified as, as Kristen in, in, in the, the legal papers. Mm-hmm. So that was, a, that was a massive scoop. But, uh, you know, they didn't really concern themselves with, with stories like O.J. Simpson or, or um, the, some of the nuts and bolts crime that, that really forms the backbone of the News and Post. So there, there was that. And, and when, when, frankly, when it came to those stories, we, we whooped them. Um, because that wasn't their bread and butter. We were battle-hardened field runners who every day went to war with the other side. I mean, just think about that. If you're in the field every day with your job on the line, fighting a, a tangible enemy on the same scene that you are, and your your victory or defeat is every day manifest on the front page, that makes you that 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 makes you into a razor's edge. And we not only beat the Times and the Wall Street Journal, when the Wall Street Journal never really covered what we, what we covered at the time, but Newsday, certainly. We not only beat them, but when we would go on out-of-town stories to, like, you know, say for O.J. Simpson or, you know, when there was a, a bridge that collapsed in Minneapolis, um, I covered that on the ground. We would beat them. We would beat NBC. We would beat everybody who went because we were – we had that edge because we fought each other every single day. We were the best field reporters in the country. But there was also a downside to that, because when, when we went really far in that regard, we, we also did some things that were questionable. I'm speaking with Mike Jacarino on Leonard Lopate at Large today on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. You mentioned that Mort Zuckerman sold the, the news in 2017. You were long gone by then for a dollar to a company called Trunk, which is no longer called Trunk. That it was a name that had been given to the Tribune Company, uh, Tribune Company Correct. being a giant in the newspaper business for many years, the second largest newspaper conglomerate in the United States, and also a major broadcast company. And uh, was WPIX. PIX. Was the hope sure. was the hope there that uh, they would revive, they would inject some money into the news? I mean, that was the, that was what the hope was. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't really speak to exactly what. Because uh, I wasn't, I wasn't there, as you point out, any longer. But you know, I, I certainly felt, looking from the outside, that um, hope that the Tribune was going to revive the news. It, it seems, 
like a natural fit because the Tri- Tribune company owned the Daily News for, for a very, very long period of time. They started the Daily News. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it didn't really work out that way. Uh, and they a year later, they just pretty much uh, uh, have the, the news's newsroom. So it, they, and as you said, it had already been cut to the bone. Uh, do we see that reflected in in the paper? Yeah, there's 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 far fewer pages. I mean, you just got to pick up the Daily News or, or the Post, for that matter, or any newspaper in the country, there's, well, there's, except for the Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the and the Washington Post, which which were you know still big and meaty. But you know they're thin. There's there's no there's no advertising. To well, there's them. no advertising because advertisers have moved on. Uh, the, Correct. When I worked yeah. for Gimbel's and Macy's. There were, I can't remember how many newspapers there were, but uh, we, advertising in the newspapers was what brought people into the stores. That's no longer the case. No, uh, I mean, that, that's it. So the, the, the business model has been ruined. Uh, we, we, we can't sell these. These are the ads that actually make money, right? The print ads and the print paper. We, we know how to monetize that. But when you sell an ad in the paper uh, and you transition that to digital, you only get about 10% of the, the revenue that you otherwise would have gotten in the print. The print. Uh, I don't know why. Maybe the click-through rate or the, the engagement rate is not uh, the same. But, you know, and we've, we've lost our classified advertising as well, all, the, all those coupons. Mm. And, you know, walk on to Craigslist and Cars.com and Zillow and all that stuff. So, and people aren't buying, the, obviously, the circulation you know, the money, to a lesser degree, the money that people spent to buy the paper at the newsstand is, is far less because there's not as many readers. So the, the conversely, all those readers that have migrated to digital are getting it for free. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really, it, there's not any money anymore to, to pay the reporters. It costs an, an enormous amount of money to wage war in the field against a rival tabloid, and the money's not coming in anymore. So there's, uh, the there's there's no competition nowadays for web traffic because uh, there's no advertising. No, of, of of course there is, but it's it's not the same. They're rewriting, uh, you know, to to large. There's not enough reporters to cover the big stories, so a lot of the times they're just rewriting what what. Did we lose you? Wow. Of other newspapers. A, a um, run, go ahead. We just lost you for a moment. So repeat what you were just saying. No, there's a lot of the model now is to rewrite what first appears in other newspapers because you can't afford the reporters to do the shoe leather journalism to produce your own product. What the model now is is to, to see what is produced by other people and then rewrite it with a credit. But that's much different than armies of people in the field battling over a single story because um, there just isn't enough money to support those 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 troops. <laughs> and didn't the runner recently tell you no one runs and when we do there's no urgency. Nobody cares. If you get the shot, great. If you don't, well, that's fine, too. Yeah, so, so the war is over, right? As you, as you pointed out, the, 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 one of my wittier colleagues at, the, at my Going Away party told me, go home, Rambo, go uh-huh. home. I mean, I, that's what was told to John Rambo at the end. The war is over. That was at my Going Away party. He thought it was funny. I thought it was funny, too. But um, without these armies in the field no, and nobody running, uh, the urgency is gone. I mean, the people who still run, I'm not going to, I want to make this point. The people who still run, the very few who still run, Terry Burke, who runs for the news, who's a legendary uh, field reporter, he runs with the the same urgency, if not more, than he he always did. 
But the thing is that there might not be anybody from the post running against him anymore. And he's only himself, right? I, I don't, maybe one runner per shift. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to cover anymore. That, whereas there might have been, you know, 40 people to cover all the stories going on in New York City. Now there's only one, and they have to make these terrible decisions about, well, which story are we going to devote Kerry to tonight? Um, and that, that's not just for the Daily News. That's for everybody. Um, there's nobody manning the, the wall anymore. There's no watchers. All the reporters are gone. Is it true that the news no longer even has its own dedicated editor-in-chief? Yes, they're sharing an editor-in-chief with the morning call of Allentown, um, which is really strange, right? They, I think Martin Dunn, you know, he made like seven figures when I was there, um, you know, or something like it. <laughs> and, and Call Out, I'm sure, made, made something around that. But now they don't even have their own editor-in-chief. And, uh, um, and recently, hasn't a hedge fund named Alden Global Capital taken over the Tribune Company? Uh, they've bought up a number of papers, and... Uh, haven't they cl- been closing them? Why would you buy a paper and then close it? Uh, you could sell it off for parts, right? <laughs> really? Um, yeah, you could you could liquidate something like a, like the old corporate like Gordon Gecko, like the <laughs> like the, the corporate raiders of the 1980s. You can buy a company, and sometimes its value is you know worth more. You know, if you sell it off, um, or you maybe you could you could take massive loans against it and then dump it. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that hedge funds use uh, diminished assets to make money. Uh, I don't know what Alden is going to do. I want to say that, okay, but there is certainly fear of what their intentions are. And meanwhile, is the Post thriving at all? Uh, If if this war ends with a victory, uh, I get uh, the feeling uh, from what you've been saying that the Post is going to win. They're not. There's not. Look, they're. They're. They may have won, but they've. They've won because the guy behind them doesn't want to give up. Um, oh, I guess that's a reason for winning. He's. 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 He's outlasted the news. Uh, yeah. I mean, Rupert Murdoch. He always wanted to win the war. He. He. he from the very moment he bought the, the post, as I said, he was obsessed on winning the war, and it looks like he's going to as long as he can stay alive for a few more years. Well, he's 88 um, now, isn't he? Yeah, but but. Yeah, and his mother lived to be, I don't know, 106 or something. But, you know, they're both diminished. It's not like this is a this is some chest-thumping victory. I, I don't want to, you know, he's going to win, but he he's, you know, his paper has been ravaged as well. I mean, they both wore each other out, and digital, you know, wore each other out as well. I mean, that's what the book is about. They, both papers, you know, under this existential threat, throwing everything they have at the fan to try to, to, try to be the last paper standing. And, and they've both really been diminished by the, by the war and, 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 and digital. And will it really matter in the future because we have so many other sources of news? You don't, though, right? These people are, aren't, you know, the people online are not necessarily beating the bushes like, you know, the, 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 the hundreds of, of city desk reporters who used to do it for the news in the Post. You know, as I said, they're... You might have a lot of outlets, but they're all copying out to each other. They're all linking out to each other. What counts is original journalism. People on the beat, people asking each other what, what you know, people going out into the field and finding out what happened and, and attending council meetings and, and reviewing budgets mm. and asking politicians tough questions and holding their feet to the fire. And that model doesn't, doesn't work anymore. It works for the Times. It works for the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. 
because their product is so superior to everybody else's that people are willing to pay to get past the paywall. But for everybody else, it's bankruptcy like McClatchy or it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, calling yourself a non, you know, filing to become a nonprofit like another major newspaper just did or, 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 you know, finding uh, sucker, uh, you know, in the bank account of, of a billionaire who was going to do this out of some altruistic, you know, sense of goodwill for the public. There's nobody on the beat anymore to pay these people. And that matters, right? There's a lot of different sources, but nobody's, nobody's out there running. It, uh, it should be pointed out that Times doesn't always engage in perfect journalism either. I know I'm a victim, although of that, and I'm I can't talk about it now. But uh, the Times really uh, screwed up in reporting about me. You also worked for Murdoch, didn't you? Weren't you on FoxNews.com? Yeah, I I, I, I had a great colleague uh, uh, at, at the Post who uh, had made the transition uh, to FoxNews.com. So when I got laid off. Uh, by the news, I, I was able to get some freelance work, uh, some steady uh, freelance work at foxnews.com. It's a great shop. It's it's now run by a former uh, Daily News guy, uh, Greg Wilson, and uh, they, you know they do they do they do great stuff. They they really do. You've also written for the Week. What else have you been doing over the years since you left the news, other than writing this book? <laughs> so uh, a- after I left. Uh, the Daily News. I I, uh, I worked for the National Enquirer for about four and a half years as a, as a national correspondent. Uh, they were able to continue to thrive. Uh, their readership uh, wasn't as diminished by. Um, he, here's the reason. This is interesting, right? So you have to make it quick. The national Enquirer, okay. The National Enquirer doesn't have an online edition, right? So people still still want to buy the print product. And for that reason, they still had money to pay reporters. So they hired a lot of uh, displaced journalists from New York City outlets after the 2008 crisis. And I found a home there, and, and I, I, uh, I did some good work there as well, um, which is a kind of interesting dynamic, right? You have all these mainstream reporters working at the National Choir because it's the only shop in town that can still pay. Mike Jacarino's book is America's Last Great Newspaper War, The Death of Print in Two Tabloid Town, published by Fordham University Press. Thank you so much for being on our show. Leonard, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. You can follow me on mjacarino1. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for their invaluable contributions throughout the week. If you're new to our show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We hope you'll join us on Monday when regular contributors to the show, Catherine and Ross Pet, will discuss their new book, Awkward Moments, a lively guide to the 100 terms smart people should know. We'll be taking. Thank you again. Have a great weekend.